0: Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information, and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in Fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, May 15th, we are studying Revelation chapter 2, verses 12-17. to 17. In today's text, Jesus gives the third of seven letters that John is to write to the congregations in Asia Minor. This letter is addressed to the angel of the church in Pergamum. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have this regular guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Thanks for having me on, Pastor Apple. This is always a treat.
0: We are Talking
1: about the book of
0: Revelation today, Pastor Casper, so before we get started on the particular text, let's just talk about that in general. Why is the book of Revelation an important one for Christians? How should we approach it?
1: The book of Revelation is awesome for Christians for a couple of reasons. One of the chief ones, really, is that so often in Christianity, it is by no deliberate means in, in any way. It's misinterpreted, and it's used as if it is some sort of code book to decipher the end days and things that are going to happen or not going to happen and all sorts of fun stuff like that. It's fanciful. It catches our imagination, and, and that's part of why it's been propagated so much throughout recent history. But that's not the right way to read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a picture for us of the in an instantness of the end day, the one time, the instant of everything that happens all at once, and it is a picture for us of the actual resurrection of all flesh. What is the, what is it that we're headed for? And that's that's what we get. Um, it's also really useful to to get get the context of where John is writing, where he is. Um, he talks earlier in chapter one about how I was I was taken up in the spirit on the Lord's day. And uh, I think one of the better, better ways to sort of shorthand that is to say that John, the old man, is in church while in exile on Patmos, on Patmos, and he happens to nod off during church and is given a vision from the Lord. And that's what gives us this picture. This is, this is all about the worship life of the church, and of course that's what a man nodding off in church is going to have as a vision, a picture of what he's already doing right that moment. I don't know
0: if John nodded off.
1: Yeah, I might be extrapolating a bit. But it's I think it's so. it's certainly a better way to think of it than this grand revelation that is that is a picture of a code book to understand what's going to happen over the the imaginary thousand year reign of Christ on earth, which is the opposite of what we teach as Lutherans and the opposite of what Revelation is teaching us in itself.
0: No, I, I, think, I think it's it's wise to, to point out he is in worship when he has this vision given from the Spirit. And I, I think the the really important thing to emphasize about what you've been saying so far, that it's not a code book to decipher about the end of the world. Dr. Lessing made this point when we were introducing the book. If that's the approach we're going to take, then suddenly the book of Revelation becomes a book that's not for Christians of every age, but it's only for a specific few. and And the way that you're telling us to take the book means that it is a book of comfort for us, not only not only us as Christians, but Christians since John received this, this has been a book of comfort pointing us to Christ until he does return.
1: Yeah, and as we get more specifically, we're going to get into one of the particular letters. Each of these letters is indicative of a particular thing that afflicts not just this congregation— Put all congregations in some way, and it's a fair warning for everybody in the entire Christian church. Beware of this stuff. This is the evil that's creeping in from the outside world, and you need to be on guard. You need to watch this because this will corrupt you. And ultimately, and this is the, the reason that John is writing in the first place, it's going to turn you away from the faith nothing can separate you from the will of from the love of god unless you yourself separate you yourself from him then you're going to be apart from god and that's not a good place to be that's that's that heads you for perdition instead of instead of salvation
0: hmm. so you you've given us some context on the book as a whole a little bit about the letters anything else you know we're here in the middle of chapter 2 the middle of these seven letters any other context of what we've read so far that's helpful to understand this letter to the church in pergamum
1: Yeah, so we got, uh, you probably already spoke about the the lampstands and the angels and and where we're getting this image of the letters. We're hearing now the voice of the Lord speaking from his throne room. And so among the lampstands and the angels, this is the letter given to each one of the angels. And so the, the... Good, a, a good way to think and understand about this is the angel not so much as an angel sent from God, but rather angel, the messenger. And this could be understood more simply as the pastor of the church in this congregation. These people gathered here, they have a messenger who is sent to them, that's the one who preaches the word, and this letter is foreign to him. This is for you to, to, to give to your people, watch out. Be on guard for this stuff. These are the specific afflictions that are that are uh, that are in your congregation. This is this is what's going to cause trouble for you and your people right now. Let's watch out for this, and which which is what eventually rolls into the the stuff that becomes valuable for all of us. But in these cases, each one this is very specific to something that's going on in in this case, Pergamum, or in Thyatira in the next section, or in Smyrna yesterday. So in each one of these congregations, it is both specific, narrow, and broad. For all applications.
0: Yeah, I I was gonna ask you about the angel. We've talked about this several times now, and I think so far we've all pretty well settled on that in the context we've got here, the angels of the churches are what we would call pastors, and they they are messengers sent from God. They're not the spirit being messengers that God sends, like Gabriel, but rather men whom God sends to give his message, to give his word, to the churches, I think in this context, that's the way we should understand angel. So to the pastors, that is who receives these letters, so that then they faithfully give these words to the congregations under their care. Today, we're reading the one that is given to the church in Pergamum. I'm going to go ahead and read the text for us. This is Revelation 2, beginning at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel That is the text for today. That is Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17, the letter to the church in Pergamum. Pastor Casper, we talked about the angel. Tell us about Pergamum. What should we know about the
1: city of Pergamum where this church is located? So Pergamum is one of the one of the cities of Asia Minor, which is the major the major churches that are these early Christian centers of of the the Christian expansion. And so, like all of them, are suffering from various things. Capernaum is surrounded by pagan influences all around it, and so it is perched in the midst of the expanding Christian world, and also dwelling within the ever encroaching pagan world all around it. Um, it is it is not one of these places like Jerusalem, which is surrounded by a lot more comfortable environment. This is this is where this is out in the darkness, in the wilderness. This is the leading edge of the of the expansion of the Christian faith. So they're. They're out in, in in the midst of all the commerce and the craziness of the Roman Empire. This is this this is like all of the like like many of the other cities that we find mentioned in the Bible, like Corinth and and Thessalonica and Philippi. All these places that are that are surrounded by other influences. That's the kind of place that that uh, Pergamum is also.
0: Hmm. Yeah, as opposed to say the church in Smyrna, which when we talked about that letter previously. It seems that in Smyrna, the danger was from two sides. The danger was from those who were persecuting out of the synagogue, the Jewish background, and then also the Roman. It seems in Pergamum, the danger comes a lot more from the Roman side, the the pagan nature of that city.
1: Yeah, there, it's even going to get more specific when we talk about the perch of the devil being here, that Satan dwells among you. This this is not a comfortable place. This is heavily influenced by the paganism of Rome. And so that... Mm-hmm. and. In terms of proximity, perhaps they've got a, a temple nearby or something that is that is very seriously affecting what goes on in that church. But there is there is something much more intense than what we find elsewhere.
0: Uh, Martin Franzman in his commentary in the book of Revelation, which is a, a nice short commentary, it's very helpful. He has a, cu- a couple things that I think are helpful about Pergamum. He, he notes that... Pergamum, since the second century before Christ, was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, that Pergamum was renowned for its library. It, this, he says that, that actually their library in Pergamum actually rivaled the one in Alexandria, and, and in fact, the word for parchment is apparently derived from the word Pergamum, so that's how significant this place was. And in terms of its religious background, it was a, a center for uh, the worship of a Greek god of healing and had a wonderful altar to Zeus, and it was a, especially a place that was devoted to the cult of the Roman Emperor. So this is the the place that this church is, and I think all of those things are important when we think about what is written to the church in Pergamum. Now, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, Jesus first identifies himself in each of these letters. Here he identifies himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Talk about that particular identification of our Lord.
1: Yeah, that's great, isn't it? The sharp two-edged sword. We use this in stained glass and and uh, imagery for the church all the time. This is the this is the word. This is the the working functional spoken word of God that goes and that's the creative force of the universe that goes and, and sends faith into the hearts of men and does all this wonderful work. The word does that it cuts both directions. And we we talk about this as Lutherans, especially that the sharp two-edged sword of the law and the gospel. In fact, I think you said something like that in the uh, in the intro. I think so. That it sounds familiar to me. That that is the image that we get. That this is the same image that we got from chapter one, where the image of, of the resurrected Christ is there with the with the two edged sword of, that's the tongue of his mouth. That is the word that comes out and is, and is spoken that, that both that both saves and damns, that does all this work that that kills the, kills sin and wickedness and, and brings about righteousness and, and revives the and revives those who are saved this is the work of the word and so it has it has this dual function that's and so because of that imagery there's certainty who's speaking this is this is the lord speaking his word is the only thing that does that there isn't another thing that has that that two-edged sword function or image anywhere else other than this thing this way
0: right and and we'll see as the letter continues how this sword becomes a part of what he says to the church in pergamum so jesus is here identified as the one whose word is two-edged Dividing to bones and to marrow, law and gospel. That's who's speaking to the church in Pergamum. Jesus begins, then, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. I'll, I'll pause there. We'll we'll pick up more of those details talked a little bit about this yesterday the fact that jesus knows these churches he knows things about them is a comfort so he knows where they dwell he knows they're dwelling in this danger that should comfort them particularly what he knows about this church in pergamum is that they dwell where satan's throne is so i think you called the perch of satan earlier
1: what's what's going on here so there's I think this is the, this is the imagery we're getting of this Roman cult that is heavily centered here in Pergamum that 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 Satan himself is at work against this church that there is and and this is what we can expect in the church whenever the truth of God's word is is spoken the gospel is being spread and people are being brought into the family of salvation the 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 Lord of the, the Lord of this of this universe of this Earth who is not this earth universe but rather the Lord of the Earth who is trying to overthrow the Lord of the Heaven, Satan himself is trying to take us away from God, and he he puts much more effort into into. The church that is faithful than the church that is unfaithful, because he doesn't have to work so hard at the church that's unfaithful. So they are here where Satan has set up camp and is actually working hard against them and is and is waging war in a serious way. And not only that, but they're remaining faithful. They're they're experiencing all of this onslaught, and it is not turning them away from the word. It's not turning them away from the faith. They're staying. They're standing fast and holding their ground in the midst of all this. All this steady torment that they're enduring. Mm.
0: So Satan's throne, this would likely be a reference to the cult of the Roman emperor. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, where the Roman government would demand that you confess Caesar is Lord, and Christians would refuse and instead confess Jesus is Lord. That seems to be the reference to the throne of Satan. And the fact that Jesus then says, you hold fast to my name... I think that you know that way of saying it—that you hold fast to my name. He could have said it a number of ways: you hold fast to the faith or to the truth, but holding sure. fast to my name, I think, is, is is pretty key. Talk a little bit about that confession: Jesus as Lord, as 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 opposed to other things that we might confess to be Lord.
1: Well, one of the easiest ones is is the distortion. So we've seen this a lot more in modern language, but one of the quickest ways to escape. Um, The the danger of facing the confession of Jesus as Lord is to have a more open language. We confess that there is a Lord. We confess that there is a a God, and and we won't be specific about a gender concerning God, we won't be specific about the, the Trinity, we start to broaden out our language so that more people are comfortable with what we're saying and no one gets offended by what we say, but we also allow ourselves places to hide where we don't have to be exposed as Christians using the name of Jesus and specifying Christianity by the name of Jesus our Lord rather than something else. If you're under Roman oppression and you're to confess that Caesar is Lord, well, in my own mind, what I mean when I say Caesar is Lord is that it's really Jesus. I don't mean to say Caesar. That's that's actually going to be a problem for the early Christian church when there are folks who fall away and then return later on. And how do we manage that as a church? How do we regain these folks into the faithful the faithful followers of Christianity, after they have, after they have publicly confessed something different, they've confessed another Lord in order to save their own hide. What do we let them come back or not? Ultimately, we we discover, yeah, we do let them come back because that's that's what forgiveness is. But here in this place, that's not what's going on. Here in this place, what's going on is the public confession, Jesus is Lord, not something else, not someone else, not a twist of language or a little a turn little that makes it sound okay relative to what those folks want to hear. It's not what they want to hear. They don't want to hear that Jesus is Lord, and yet this is the language. There isn't another name. There's the name above all names, Jesus Christ, the, the Savior of all, of all nations. This is the one, not, not Caesar, not anything else, just Jesus Christ alone. And that's, and that's the name that marks us. So we're known by our, by our confession, and our confession comes as a result of the mark that's already been placed on us in the waters of baptism, which, which names us as the ones who belong to Jesus.
0: Mm. And, and holding fast to this name, to the name of Jesus, then, uh, keeps us with the one who truly is on the throne. I mean, it, it's striking here that that John is given these words, you know, where Satan's throne is. We've talked about this, especially in the introduction to the book, that one of the primary images within the book of Revelation is the throne of God. That's really going to come become prominent in chapters 4 and 5, that God sits on the throne and Jesus the lamb who was slain sits on the throne reigning. So here, this church in Pergamum is located right there under the perch of Satan, where it seems that Satan has a throne and is is reigning and ruling. And yet, by holding fast to the name of Jesus, these Christians in Pergamum are actually sided with the one who truly is on the throne. And I think that, you know, for John to write, again, from Jesus, of the dwelling in the the shadow of satan's throne is really uh, brings that comfort to know as we will see in this this book later that really you're dwelling under the throne of god and and no matter where satan would try to sit on a throne his power is nothing because christ the lamb who was slain he's the one who reigns
1: yeah absolutely and that's that is all yeah this this perching on the throne and, and being in the shadow of satan's throne that that is it, it, it's it's so reassuring to know that Jesus does actually see our situation. It's not like it's something that's hidden from him. He knows what we he knows what we're suffering specifically. How it is that that Satan is afflicting our church in our town in the way that the the outside world is trying to pressure and change the the gospel that's preached here. And he sees the exact same suffering that we're under we're going under. And his response is exactly to that. You're in you seem like you're in the shadow of this throne. It's a throne of the world. Satan does not have does not have authority over you, and you are actually under my kingship. And this public name, this confession, my name is the thing that, that guards over you. This is the thing that preserves you and will preserve you into eternal life from this thing that will perish. This thing that you're dwelling in is part of the world that is currently dying and going into destruction all on its own. You're part of the thing that's that is going into everlasting salvation, which is which is different than the world that you're surrounded by. And it's and it's better than. It's bigger than. Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah, whatever whatever power Satan has sitting on his throne, the power of the one reigning on the throne of God is ultimately greater, infinitely greater, and that is great comfort. I think the the language that Jesus uses here makes it all the more important that we would pray the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, deliver us from the evil one, O Lord. And this is the prayer that Jesus has been answering for this church in Pergamum, as they dwell under the throne of Satan, yet they are holding fast to the name of Christ. His name is being made holy among them. They remain in God's kingdom. And this is true even when the persecution against them there in Pergamum grew very great. So Jesus brings up particularly the fact that they did not deny the faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Talk about this, this Antipas and the witness he gave.
1: Yeah, well, how cool is this? We we get a named saint here, a, a martyr for the faith, um, and I believe this is the only place that he's mentioned anywhere, out of anywhere else in the Bible. So it is. This is it, not this...
0: Antipas, the Herod
1: Antipas. <laughs> right, this yeah. is Antipas, a different character. Yeah. Yeah, this guy who who is, is most likely a martyr for the faith, for confessing the faith, who's killed among you, that's even more clear in that picture of Jesus sees this. He observes what's going on. He sees that you are confessing. He sees that this one, this guy who no one else knows... This, this guy, Antipas, is is uniquely named specifically for the saints gathered at Pergamum for their messenger, the angel serving them. You all need to hear his name and know that the Lord saw this, this martyr who's delivered here. Later on, we're going to get some really cool talk of the martyrs in Revelation and what's going on with them and, and where they are and what they're doing and how they dwell with the Lord, that's going to be even greater assurance for these folks at Pergamum to know that Antipas is among these folks. This, this is, this, these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. They're being, they're being held close at the side of at the throne of the Lamb. They've, they've, they've washed their robes and made them white. So this is one of those guys. This one, him, him particularly, the confession he gave, the fact that he didn't, that he didn't fall away, and was killed for the sake of the gospel that the gospel would be proclaimed, that people would hear, because outside of hearing the word of God, there's no, ch- no hope that anyone can come to the faith. But because of the work of this church, and Antipas in particular, those people are hearing, and some are coming to the faith because the two-edged sword of God's word is going out and doing the work that he sets it to do. It, it's, it's, it's accomplishing the task and bringing about salvation.
0: So he Antipas here, as you said, this is the only place we know of this named saint. What a what a wonderful thing to know that the Lord knows Antipas' name, and we know it now too. He is called the the faithful witness here, the faithful witness of Jesus. Talk more about what that means that he is a faithful witness. You I mean, you talk about we confess Christ, and we've talked about the confession, Jesus is Lord. Antipas' witness extends into his into his death the way that he died. So I mean even the word martyr which you used means witness. This is the Greek word for witness. Yeah. So how how is Antipas a witness both in in word, in deed and in death?
1: So the the mark of Christianity is that we we confess Christ. And what we mean by confessing Christ is the fullness of what Jesus is and what Jesus does. So it's it, it is it is not so simple as saying I am a Christian or Jesus is Lord, but there, those are sort of shorthand for what the entirety of the Christian confession is. And Paul gets to this when he, when he resolves that he will know nothing but Christ and him crucified among you. Apart from the, from the death, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ, there isn't a Christianity. But that's where it is it dwells here. You have fought, sinned, you have fallen short of the glory of God, and apart from some external force, you are doomed to, to die in sin because there's nothing you can do to, to reset that. And this is, the, this is the Christian confession that then Christ, this one who is talking to us, who is instructing John to write to the angel, this is the guy, the one who suffered death for you, who was raised again from the de- from the dead on the third day, who is the one that's identified as the one who appears as though he was slain and yet he lives. He is now dwelling at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who is seeing what's going on, and he is the, the voice that everyone is preaching that everyone's preaching here in places like Pergamum, spreading the gospel of the forgiveness of sins to people who are lost in sin who are lost in unbelief, which is the, you know, the, the chief of all sins, but then not just the world of unbelief, but also they're caught up in hatred of God because of their unbelief and perpetual sin because they, they, they have this internal hatred and rebellion against God, which causes them to sin even more and separate themselves even more from God, more than just their unbelief would all on its own. And the only thing that can change that is the proclamation of forgiveness in Christ. Apart from that, there is no salvation, and this is the word that's being preached by the people in Pergamum, particularly by Antipas. And because of his speaking, that's what brings about his death. He gives, he gives this martyr, this witness death, because you've said what you've said, which, is anger, which angers the face of the throne of Satan. You're going to die by the hand of the servants of Satan because of what you've said. You said the thing that you're not allowed to say. You can't speak against Rome as a god. You can't speak against the, the pagan religion and faith we hold. You're not allowed to do that. And he does. And he does and brings about his death. And then that death
0: becomes part of the testimony, part of the witness that he gives. Because if all those things that he's preaching and confessing in his words are true, then there's nothing worth giving that up for. Mm-hmm. And, and that includes Including my own death. life. Yeah. That's right so so that that death becomes a part of the testimony a part of the witness that he has given to show just how valuable this forgiveness of sins truly is that not even losing my life is worth losing the forgiveness for and it, it becomes a testimony then also of, of who Jesus is and what he's done i can die in the faith because i know he will raise me from the dead
1: yeah and what a, what, a great, great, what a great confidence and reassurance that is. Again, for these folks who are still dwelling here, this, is, this isn't for the benefit of Antipas. He doesn't need to hear it. He already hears it in, in constantly in, in, in the, the heavenly realm. But for those who are still back on the other side of suffering, the ones who are, who are in the tribulation, who are suffering through it right now, that's the message for them, that his confession, his faith, and his dying in it Doesn't destroy him. He still is he is still wrapped up in the promise of Christ, which is the same one that's wrapped you up. You're you're all being delivered out of uh, out of this tribulation into everlasting life, and he's the first one to go. You saw him go, and that's where he is now.
0: And so Jesus commends this faithfulness on the part of Antipas, on the part of the church in Pergamum, and he's going to keep speaking to them. We're going to pick up more of this letter on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about Revelation Two with Pastor Jason Casper. We will be right back, please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 15th. We're studying Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17 with Pastor Jason Casper. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, prior to the break, we looked at what Jesus commends in the church at Pergamum, their faithfulness, even while dwelling in the midst of Satan's throne. The Roman cult is not having an influence on them. They are remaining faithful, confessing Jesus as Lord instead of Caesar. However, as we have heard Jesus say in previous letters, he has some things against this church. Here he begins in verse 14 by saying to the church in Pergamum, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Talk to us about Balaam, Balak, some of that background that we need to know to understand what Jesus is saying here.
1: Yeah, we got to step in the Wayback Machine here in order to get to the the whole Balaam and Balak thing, right? So we're going back to Numbers um, chapter 22 and 24, the interaction between Balaam and Balak. Um, Balak is the the king of, and of course I'm going to fail to remember where he is king. (laughs) One of the neighboring countries. Moab, Moab, yeah, I think it is Moab, yes. So Balak, king of Moab, wants to curse the Jews because they are they're too great in number, and he cannot overcome the encampment that's, that's encroached outside of Moab. he knows they're going to. He says some things like they're they're like they're like uh, like crickets or cockroaches or, or uh, locusts. There That are going to eat up all of the grass of the of the land and leave nothing behind but a barren land. They'll they'll consume everything if they come through. So he wants to send this guy Balaam, who is. By some method that we're not able to really clearly understand, he is able to offer curses and blessings that stick, which sounds kind of like the sort of thing that the Word of God can do, although this guy is clearly not a follower of the Word of God. But by some way, he can. He tries to go and make the curse, and this is where it gets interesting. We know, we're know we much more familiar with the story of, of Balaam and his donkey and the angel in the road who was who finally revealed to him, and that the, the donkey speaks, and she has some interesting words to say. But then it gets really interesting beyond that. So Balaam is told to go, and he can't offer a curse. And so he goes, and Balak takes him around the camp to several different locations. And every time he goes to speak, he tries. he's told to offer a curse against Israel, and instead he blesses them. And then they go a different direction. You can't see them all from here. You can only see some of them. Here, do it from this point, from this vantage point. And he speaks and, and is only able to bless them. And so he continually is, either from, due to fear of the Lord or by the fact that he maybe can't even speak a curse, he is only able to bless Israel in all that he's able to do, which which incenses Balak and, and accomplishes nothing. But then, at the end of that little interaction We get to the far side of this, and Balaam, after he gives all of his final oracles, there seems to be some interesting interaction where he encourages Balak to convince the people of Israel by some method that it's okay for them to eat the food sacrificed to idols and to run around with women who are not followers of the Lord God. And this then brings about some curses upon them, and bad things are happening, there's as is often the case in the Old Testament, it's brought to an end by violence. One of the one of the one of the uh, the men of the of the priesthood comes and run, runs a spear through one of the chief offenders of this uh, of this unfaithfulness, and then the woman that he's with, killing them both. And then Balaam uh, Balaam also dies as part of this whole interaction. So this this whole mess goes on here, which very nearly derails Israel as they're coming to the end of their time in the wilderness.
0: Right, right. So that's so for. Well, for everything that happens in chapters 22 through 24, where Balaam is unable to curse Israel, still he's not, quote, one of the good guys. <laughs> and, no, not by a long shot, that, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So you see that, especially in chapter 25, where he is the one behind this sexual immorality that happens within the people of Israel that has to be put to an end violently, as you said, later in the book of Numbers. This gets referenced in other places in the, in the Old Testament as well, and that's what's the background here. And I think that you know when, and maybe uh, maybe they were actually talking about Balaam there in Pergamum, or there were Christians talking about him, or perhaps that's mentioned as a way to indicate the seriousness and the great depravity of again some, not all, but some who are holding to this teaching, thinking that it's perfectly fine for them to live however they want and and to practice all kinds of sexual immorality and participate in idol worship without any impact on their Christian faith.
1: Yep. And that sort of that, that is sort of the the natural sin of the Roman pagan, because everybody sort of wherever they're coming from into Christianity, they have something that is the unique practice where they are. And for these folks coming into Christianity, the common practices for Roman paganism is is the food at the altars and the and the temple prostitute system and that whole that whole mess. So this rampant sexual immorality is part of Roman culture. And so you're coming out of Roman culture into Christianity and maybe, you know, I don't have to worship the Roman gods to still have fun. That's, that's, I don't want to lose all of my life. I don't want to give up everything that I like as a Roman. And so they're trying to navigate or find a way to sort of be both and to be dual citizens in a way, which is not a thing you can do. You can't, can't part. I think someone says something about partaking of the, the altars of angels and demons, and that you can't do yeah. both of those things.
0: Yeah. So so on the one hand, the church in Pergamum is, is holding strong, confessing Jesus is Lord in the face of the Roman cult. But on the other hand, there are some who are trying to hold on to some of those vestiges of the Roman cult that that although maybe they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, by their lifestyle of sexual immorality by the way that they are eating food sacrificed to idols, they're participating in it in a backdoor sort of way. And Jesus yeah. says, I have that against you.
1: Yeah, there's, and there's no such thing as part-time Christianity. You, you, you are either a Christian or you're not. And the the other danger here, and this is, I think, where we get the, the Balaam-Balak reference, this is going to corrupt everyone in Pergamum. If you, let this carry, if you all let this go on, it's going to eventually make all of you fall away in the same way. And th- this is separating you from the, from the faith. So don't, don't allow this to happen among you. You need, to, you need to go after the folks that are doing this and, and get them to stop or, or root them out, really. This is, this is the only way to, to stop that rot from infecting the entire church around them. If we allow this to go on and don't address it, it's going to be a bigger problem. So let's not let's not do that. You're being faithful in, in this way, don't be unfaithful in the other way.
0: Right. So this is one of the things Jesus has against the church is the way that some are holding to the teaching of Balaam. He also mentions in verse 15 that some are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans are mentioned as false teachers also in the church to the letter the letter in the church to Ephesus. And there, the ones in Ephesus actually hate the works of the Nicolaitans. So the church in Ephesus is on the right side of this, whom I the also in, hated, yeah, that's right. The the church in Pergamum, however, is there are some that are falling for the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, uh, from what I understand, the the teaching of the Nicolaitans is kind of hard to to pin down as to what exactly they they taught in terms of their false doctrine. We know that they're false teachers, but exactly what seems to be a little mysterious. Do you have any? The, any information well, think, on the Nicolaitans?
1: I think this helps. It's kind of it's held some, by some traditions in Christianity that the Nicolaitans were a problem because they were mingling culture and Christianity, and that sort of fits with where we are here with the Pergam with the the folks at Pergamum. I almost said Pergamumites, which we're not given to say that necessarily, but in any case, these folks, the people from Pergamum. They, they are suffering from this problem where the external pagan culture is mingling itself with Christianity. And that sort of fits with what may be known about the Nicolaitans, that those folks are the ones who are mingling culture and Christianity around it. And this, this is one area that speaks to us as modern Christians pretty loudly, that there is this constant overpowering of external forces in, in the world around us that are attempting to distort our understanding of Christianity and you know you, you we've we've all heard this this criticism of Christianity well you're just you just you all need to get with the times you need to figure out what's going on around you the world is a different place than it was in 1872 well yes it is physically a different place than it was in 1872 but Christianity is still saying the same thing to the world around it nothing has ever changed in that regard we are still Christians fighting against a world that is dying and collapsing around us and that idea of where the Nicolaitan, Nicolaitans are and what they have to say and how they affect Christianity, if they're the ones who are bringing culture in and mingling the wicked parts of culture into Christianity, these are the folks we ought to be wary of. This is the practice we ought to be wary of. And, and having it side by side with that, that, uh, that Balaam and Balak thing, I think, that, I think that's a fitting way to think about that since we don't really know much else. That's, that's, that's probably the best we can accomplish from where we sit
0: right it it seems that most of the the church fathers who who have an idea about who the Nicolaitans are do make this connection to what's going on here in pergamum that there's maybe some sort of relationship between that teaching of balaam that they're holding to and then those holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. so both of those things jesus has against the church in pergamum even in the midst of their faithfulness there are some examples where unbelief is harming them. So, the call in verse 16 from the Lord shouldn't surprise us, therefore repent. Turn away, turn back, come back to me. And he says if not, and here's where we come back to the sword, Jesus says he'll come soon in war against them with the sword of his mouth. Talk about this response, the call to repentance and what happens if it's not heeded.
1: Yeah, turn away. Turn away from your wickedness. Don't do that. This this is the whole confession of scripture for us from start Stop to it. finish don't do that. This is what the prophets say. This is this is actually where we we're, we're in good company here to be talking about the, these this angel as a messenger of, of the Lord at among this congregation as their pastor. that's what the prophets do too. the prophets come and speak the word of the Lord among the people and unlike the prophets of old who are given vision of things that is to come, prophets now who preach to the preach to the people preach what he's already said. And this ongoing preaching, this ongoing ter- saying, turn away! Don't go to, into sin. Turn away from sin. Do something different. Let's come over this way and learn what the le- learn what the word of God is about. Learn what the li- life of a Christian is about, and start to conduct ourselves in a way that isn't that way. Let's do a different thing. This this is the, the 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 warning that Christ gives. Repent. Turn away. Do something different. Turn away from the from the wickedness and the pagans that are surrounding you. The Nicolaitans the follow the words of Balaam. All this other garbage. By the way, I am coming soon. Which, the, the when of the soon is always going to be a mystery to us because no one knows the day or the time. And even the roadmap we're studying right now doesn't expose it to us. We don't get some secret code that identifies when. We only know that the Lord is coming soon by his own estimation. How soon soon is... Isn't given to us to know. He comes like a thief in the night. And when he comes with the sword of his mouth, he is coming to root out wickedness, to bring his sheep to himself and to send the goats away. That's, that's where we as Christians need to always be a little bit wary and remember that the Lord is coming and we don't know when. Let's be in the faith and remain there. There, is, there may not be a tomorrow to turn around and, and revive ourselves from, from whatever we're doing today.
0: So repent now before the Lord comes with the sword, so that he, when he divides sheep and goats, he puts you on his right and commends you because of your faith. Repent, turn to Christ in faith. This is the call to the church in Pergamum, to those holding to the teaching of Balaam and holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus then continues in words that we've heard him say already and continue to hear him say in more letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Talk about that repeated refrain of these letters.
1: Yeah. He who has ears, let him hear. This this is that the word of God comes to us, we hear it. And that's the thing that comes in and, and generates faith and generates faithfulness and restores us. The word of God at work in us by coming together. And that is that is in its own, just all by itself in that one little particle of phrase there, that is an encouragement to turn away from a different kind of wickedness. Come to the house of the Lord. Come often. Hear the Lord's word frequently among his people gather with the faithful together on the lord's day and receive his body and blood this is the stuff that christian that the christian faith is built on this is what this is what turns you away from your wickedness you're going to struggle against wickedness your entire life but only the word of god actually changes the heart and turns us into a different thing and when we're separating ourselves from it, when we do not have an ear to hear, when we have when we have ears that hear other things, that's when the world comes and starts to corrupt and push out the truth that is that has entered and set purchase inside of us and is turning us away from where we want to be and what we want to do and how we want to act. We want to do all the wrong things, but the Lord wants us to hear and to be and to be turned in another direction.
0: Hmm, that's right. Yeah, he wants us to hear his word now, to listen to that. That sharp, two-edged sword, so that it brings us to repentance, that it puts to death our sin now, and then rather brings than, us to life. Rather than using that sword on the last day, that would send us to eternal death. Uh, so listen now.
1: Listen but pastor, now. I, I intend to come back to church someday.
0: He who has an ear to hear now, this is this is always today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait. Yeah, yeah. yeah he has indeed. an ear. Repent. So. Then Jesus continues again to to words that are familiar to us, to the one who conquers. Talk about this before we talk about what Jesus specifies, the one who conquers. Who is this one who conquers?
1: So this this is kind of fun because Jesus is the one who conquers. But then in the name of Jesus, we are the ones who conquer the world with the gospel that the Lord sends us out to preach. So to the one who conquers, I have already conquered. Now you are conquering in my in my name, and by the work that I've done, you're toppling over the unbelieving world. This is you. You're the one that's that is conquering, and to you, I'm going to give this stuff. I'm going to give these blessings to you because you are defeating the world around you, and you are and you are setting aside the wickedness and kicking it out and kicking it out of your house and kicking it out of your town and all that fun stuff. This is the this is the the warlike onward Christian soldiers marching us to war this is the the picture of, of the Christians that are at at war with an unbelieving world not to kill it but to turn it away from its wickedness
0: mm. and and because Jesus is the one who has conquered who has won the victory then we participate in that through faith John John says that in his first epistle this is the the victory this that overcomes our faith so we are those who conquer by faith and Jesus says to this one who conquers, he will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So of the things Jesus has promised to the one who conquers so far, I think this is the strangest and the one that we're going to have to do a little more work scripturally to find some of these things. We talked about the tree of life, the paradise, the second death already. Here we've got hidden manna and, and white stones and names. So... Let's start with hidden manna, because of the, the things mentioned, I think that sounds the most familiar.
1: That's the low-hanging fruit, right? That's <laughs> that's the, the simpler one. No, that, that one's actually wonderful. What a what a great metaphor that is. The hidden manna, which this is the way we talk about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist in the Lord's Supper. That that it is a hidden thing. We we are told that it is true. This is my body, and in the mystery, the 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 sacrament of the hiddenness of how God Presents himself to us in in the in the, the body and blood of Christ by his word. This is the manna connection, and Christians have often made this connection between the manna in the wilderness and the bread of the Lord's supper. That these are these are similar things in some way, and so this hidden manna is 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 probably rightly understood as the thing that is given to those who receive in faith. Because remember, those who receive in those who receive in unbelief still receive. The the word still receive the the body and blood of Christ, but there it's for condemnation, not for blessing and, and and for forgiveness. And so the hidden manna, the thing that's 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 hidden from them, is the forgiveness that comes with it. That's that's the part that they don't get. And so this this hidden thing is for those who are conquering, those who are being maintained, who are being kept in the faith. And by this by faith, it's received in in truth. So I think that's probably the right way to think about the manna.
0: Okay, so hidden hidden manna, a, a reference to. Christ's bodily presence in the the Lord's Supper. I mean, you think about the nature of the, the hidden manna, and you think about Jesus' words in John 6, where he says, I am the bread of life. I mean, yeah. well, what does that mean? It's only understood in Christ that we understand this bread of life in the way that, that I think does point to the sacrament. So hidden manna, okay, the one who conquers receives Christ in his sacrament. He gives him the hidden manna. Then Jesus also promises, I will give him a white stone, And then there's a name written on this stone and nobody knows this name except the one who receives it. Now this, I don't know that this is the low hanging fruit, Pastor Casper.
1: No, this one's, this one's denser and, and more interesting. Um, I think there, there are a few things that sort of tie into there going, going based on, on what, uh, on what Brighton has to say in the, in the blue book. It seems as though there might be some sort of allusion to a wedding banquet invitation, how there could have culturally been a, a little bit that goes along with it, that, that, that the true invitation, not the false one, comes with a little with a little talisman, a little marker, a stone of some sort that you give at the, at the door of the wedding feast that indicates that you are actually an invitee to the wedding. Um, that could be a thing. Um, I think we're probably also fair in thinking of this in terms of the way that we, that we treat uh, baptisms and funerals. We use white stuff all the time for that that sort of thing. When we're coming to baptisms, there's a white garment, there's a white candle. Sometimes there's a white shell. Um, I was showing you earlier the the white TLH, which was an old baptismal gift that was often given to, to to the children who were baptized for the families to use as a remembrance. There there are all these little elements that go along with that. And when we come to the funeral side of things, we use a white pall to cover the casket. This this white image of salvation, which is which is Given to the one who is saved, and it and it's a marker for them, a, a physical remembrance of the thing that God did for you in baptism—that you were baptized, brought into faith, forgive your sins are forgiven, and that and that the 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 faith and trusting in Jesus is implanted into you, which then blossoms and grows throughout your life as a Christian. This this is a thing that has an appearance, but no one can see it. You can, you can see these external representations of it, these things that are given, but it isn't something that is on full display for everyone else to see. Moreover, the name that's given to you is the name of Jesus Christ. And that name is meaningless apart from faith in Christ. Only those who are given the name of Christ have an understanding of what the name of Jesus Christ is, what it means, and what it does. And what it does is it brings about your salvation. So I think there is kind of a place to, to land underneath this white stone thing. It's not, okay. certainly not the, the end-all be-all, but it's, 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 a, it's a sensible way to think of it.
0: So, and this would be one of those places where having some knowledge of what was happening in that period of history is helpful. Because I don't know that the, the white stone tradition of being a, you know, a wedding banquet ticket shows up in the scriptures anywhere. You have the wedding garment i mean i think of that parable and 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 getting into the the wedding feast and wearing the wedding garment but i don't know that Mm -hmm. the white stone fits there so there's some helpful information i the thing I, i like about the white stone being an admission to a wedding banquet is that the theme of eating does show up in more than one place in this letter to the church in pergamum so i mean we've even talked about eating of the hidden manna so here's the the real food that the lord would have you have and and also the matter of not eating food sacrificed to idols. Martin Franzman in his commentary mentions that this this fits well so that those who would forego the the eating food sacrificed to idols, those who forego the feasting involved in idolatrous worship, they receive an even better feast, the one that we receive now in the sacrament. And as John will reveal to us later in this book the wedding feast of the lamb in his kingdom that has no end.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point to go where to go with it too. That really this that is and that's a major thrust of the entirety of revelation, this idea that we're headed for the marriage feast of the lamb and that's that's the culmination of this. Everything is leading up to and preparing us for what's happening in this transition when the dead are raised and their graves are broken and they're raised up out of their graves and those that are alive are caught up with them and separation of sheep and goats and all the stuff goes on and now we actually enter into paradise in the marriage feast of the Lamb with a white stone. Maybe that's the, the representation we get from Pergamum. You get, you get to come into the good feast now. Now that, you've, now that you've, we've withheld the, the bad feast from yourself, you, you get to come in here to this place instead. Come on into this wedding feast now. And, and the, the, the pictures that are useful to have floating around in our minds here are the, the separation of sheep and goats. The sheep don't realize that, they are the, that they're righteous enough to be here. And sim- simultaneously, the goats don't understand why they would be turned away everyone is right confused. well and, it, and
0: it's that it's that that name then that you were talking about that is what what gives that protection that's what secures the spot is the name that's written on this stone which is again as we've seen previously in this letter this is the name to which the church in pergamum is holding fast the name of Jesus and as you said this is a name that that to the world doesn't mean anything you know what what's the big deal with the name of Jesus why should i care about that and jesus has has said that the world isn't going to know him, it's not going to know his followers, because they don't have that faith. But for us as Christians, that name is is everything. As Peter says in the book of Acts, that's the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Mm-hmm. And though the world doesn't know that name, we who have received it in holy baptism, we do know that name and we hold on to it. We, we hold on to that stone so that we might receive this this marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom that has no end got about 2 minutes here pastor casper reflecting on this this letter help us to wrap it up help us to to see how this letter to the church in pergamum is helpful for us as christians
1: living in 2023 yeah such good stuff this this is wonderful because and i think more so than some of the other letters because i think i think there's a an aspect of different times in history when the letters speak to different churches in different ways this one is intensely aimed at us right now this is very pertinent to what what we're experiencing in the church. We are dwelling in a world that is increasingly unchristian and increasingly oppositional to the Christian faith. And the the temptation for the church, and we see it on full display in certain in certain corners of Christianity, the temptation for the church is to turn and distort and become one with culture in various ways that we're totally sure this doesn't distort Christianity. We can still be Christians 100% if we allow this thing to come in, if we if we confuse ourselves about what gender is, that's okay. We can still be Christians. If we confuse ourselves about what marriage ought to be, that that men and women can be married and not something else, men single only one man, only one woman, and all that all the the things that we never used to have to define so clearly, these things are creeping into places that are calling themselves the church. This is the Nicolaitan, Nicolaitan stuff. This is the this is the the sign of Balaam and Balak. This is this is the corruption of culture. And the Lord has given us this, this to hear, to warn us against it, that the corruption of culture coming into Christianity is going to pull you out of Christianity. Turn away from that stuff. Repent. The two-edged sword is coming, and, and you want the Lord to be preserving you in the faith, not, not to be allowing you to fall into unbelief. So let's, let's dwell in a different place. And I think that's really useful for us. And the reason the whole thing comes down to the white stone at the end. Why? Because the marriage feast of the Lamb is the promise that awaits us at the end of this whole thing. We're not just suffering for no reason. We're suffering indignation here on earth, and we're suffering the, the, the hatred of the world around us because of the name of Christ, and the name of Christ is being delivered to us, and he is delivering us to himself to the marriage feast which waits us at the end of days. This is good stuff. Pastor Jason
0: Casper is pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. He has been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thanks for having me again, Pastor Apple.
0: I am your host on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about these letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.